Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, September 9th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look into a specific policy subject and we have guests on the show that are experts in their field. To the greatest extent possible, we stay away from politics and instead concentrate on research, facts, and the experience and insight of our guests to help us arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrative solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. Hosting today's program is Bruce Moreland. Bruce has been active in local planning for many years, having served on the Northfield Climate Action Planning Advisory Board, two local planning commissions, and is currently serving on the Northfield Human Rights Commission. He also co-hosted the KYMN Climate Show with Alan Anderson for four years. Bruce also has a monthly column in the Faribault and Northfield newspapers. And the man sitting across from me is Rich Larson, the news director here at KYMN Radio. Today on Public Policy This Week, we're going to talk about municipal governance and the challenges of running a city government in 2022. Joining us today are Ben Martig, the city administrator for Northfield, Minnesota, and Tom Terry, the city administrator for Elko New Market. Ben has been the Northfield administrator for six years. Before that, he was city administrator in Marshall, Minnesota for nearly eight years. He has also served in the community development roles in Anoka and in Blue Earth, where he also was the inter- he was also the interim city administrator for a time. Ben is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse and has a master's degree in city planning from the University of Minnesota's Humphrey Institute of Public Affairs. Tom Terry has been in the Elko New Market area for 18 years. He assumed the role of New Market City Administrator in 2004 for two years before becoming the City Administrator in Elko and then working through the merger of the two cities. He is the only City Administrator the merged community of Elko New Market has ever had. Tom has a bachelor's degree from St. Cloud State University and a master's degree in Urban and Regional Studies from Minnesota State University in Mankato. So, gentlemen, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Did, 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 did we get the bio stuff right? I mean, I, I just pulled things basically off of LinkedIn. Did we, did we do okay? <laughs> <laughs> Considering I don't update my LinkedIn very often, that sounded accurate. <laughs> All right. I cross-checked it against the information the FBI has. <laughs> I was going to say, you, you pulled the files? Yeah. I You're okay. All right. Good. Good. Excellent. Well, again, I want to, uh, Bruce and I both want to thank you both for uh, taking the time to, to be with us today. Um, we're just going to get into it. And I think the most, the first thing we need to do, I think, is to sort of define the role. What is a city administrator? Um, I think people sometimes uh, misconstrue the position versus what, what is the role of the mayor, the city council. So what are the responsibilities of a city administrator in general? And um, are there facets of your positions that make it unique to to Northfield or to to Elko Newmarket? Yeah, so you are right, Rich. Um, There are people often confuse the role of the city administrator. Um, They confuse us with council people. Um, They confuse where we fit into the organization Mm -hmm. relative to the city council. 
And for when I'm talking to just a general member of the public or a brand new council person or appointed official, and I'm talking about the role of the city administrator, the best way to put it into private sector terms is we're the CEO of the company. Um, the council is the board. Mm-hmm. The voters are the stakeholders who elect the board. Right. And we take our direction from the board on the direction that the community needs to go. The best way to think about it is the council sets the course, we sail the ship. Yeah. So at the end of the day, uh, your city administrator or city manager mm-hmm. um, in a Minnesota city is really responsible for the day-to-day operations of the city and implementing the vision and policies that the council set forth. So it's not necessarily like uh, the mayor sits in that that chief executive role and you would be the chief of staff. It's it's a little more involved than that. It can be. Can be. Um, so there's different forms of government. Um, okay. So we'll go back to Civics 101. Uh, there are uh, existing, you might say, strong mayor cities and weak mayor cities. Mm-hmm. And strong mayor cities, the mayor is the chief executive officer. They're the chief elected official, and they actually are in charge of the operations of the city. And a lot of times they'll have a deputy mayor or a chief administrative mm-hmm. officer who kind of takes care of the day-to-day things while they take care of things on the more political end of the spectrum. Your very large cities will be structured that way. Right. Minneapolis just went to that model. That would be yeah. an example. However, the majority of cities in Minnesota um, have what you would call a weak mayor arrangement. And in a weak mayor arrangement, the mayor really has no other authorities than other council members except for very few outlined in statute, such as declaring public emergencies, um, having the tie-breaking vote in very limited situations, things mm-hmm. like that. However, they are the face of the city. They represent the city. They tend, They run the meetings, and mm-hmm. so they have a lot of official and unofficial roles, but at the end of the day, they still only have one vote. Uh, The council then hires a city manager or a city administrator to run the city. Mm -hmm. And I've used both terms, and they often get used interchangeably, but there is some minor differences. Um, In Minnesota, a city manager um, has a little bit more autonomy than a city administrator Mm -hmm. does. Uh, They have the ability to individually make decisions about hiring and firing. Uh, They have the ability to enter into contracts on behalf of the city, uh, where the city administrator may have those ability to do that, but it's it's not inherent. It's delegated by the council. Okay. In day-to-day functions, though, the positions essentially function very similarly. Um, In Minnesota, we have two different types of cities. We have charter cities, and we have statutory cities. Charter cities basically existed before Minnesota was a state, and they have individual charters or constitutions essentially that run the city, and there may be special powers, authorities, and responsibilities assigned to that city administrator or city manager position because of that, but most cities, by and large, the overwhelming majority are statutory cities, Mm -hmm. and they're divided into statutory A and statutory B cities, which basically define, do you have a city administrator or city manager? Mm -hmm. Where does Elko Newmarket uh, fall there? I'm a city administrator. You're a city administrator. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Um, Northfield is a charter a charter city. Does that, uh, Ben, does that pose any special challenges or any give you any extra responsibility or anything like that? Is there anything you have to do differently because you uh, run a, uh, the government for a charter city? Yeah, thanks, Rich. I would say, you know, Tom's on the right track where in many ways you function pretty similarly. But some examples in Northfield are is, is 
his example of contracts, I do have the authority delegated to me to enter into contracts directly to the city so I don't have to go to the city council for, to enter into contracts. I have spending authority up to $100,000 to authorize without council approval as long as it's within our overall budget that we have. Um, I have the ability to hire and terminate all employees with, the with a few exceptions of some specific ones that I appoint, but the council confirms, which would be like our department director, so our public works director, our police chief, mm -hmm. finance director, et cetera. Th those kind of highest level positions, I bring in the recommendation of the council, but they have to confirm it um, okay. to, to go through that process. So those are some of the nuances but generally yeah generally it's kind of like i'm the overall you know a chief administrative officer of the city northfield uses the title of the mayor holding the executive position but i would say it functions more similarly to kind of that um similar system where northfield actually is probably even though it doesn't define it that way is really kind of more of a city manager form of government sure. the way that the powers are delegated to it but for whatever reason the the charter doesn't say that so the you know the mayor runs the meetings the mayor is the ceremonial person for the city mm -hmm. uh, they make appointments on boards and commissions the council has to confirm those appointments yep. um but yeah kind of uh, that's that's the general kind of overall executive uh, administrative uh, function so this, is, this this might be a silly question but how important is the relationship that the two of you have with the mayors of your city? Well, I'd say it's very important uh, for the mayor as well as the uh, full city council. So the, the, the mayor position, one of the big things that we do on a regular basis is we set the agenda. So the city administrator sets the agenda for the meeting with input from the mayor. So I'm often talking to her about what's maybe coming up and, mm -hmm. and kind of what's coming forward. And um, really from like a communication standpoint, the mayor is really an important position. They set the tone for the community. When yeah. you're in the middle of a pandemic or a public emergency, right. a lot of times they're the spokesperson, um, kind of letting your community know what's happening and setting them at ease. So that's really important. The, the direction that the, the, the mayor, though, doesn't directly supervise the position, my supervisors, and probably similar to Tom, is is the council as a whole. And the council speaks um, not as individuals, but they, they speak by voting in a meeting. So that's mm -hmm. how they give direction. I'm the only contracted employee that they hold accountable from like a management disciplinary, I guess, <laughs> standpoint. Um, so I answer to them and they give me direction really through voting at the council meetings is how they direct. They don't individually direct outside of meetings, but okay. certainly relationships with all of the council people uh, and especially the mayor is really important. Sure. That d uh, does raise, you know, part of the challenge of our position within yeah. the community. Um, I have a five person council. Some communities have more. But the, I work for the council. But if you think of it that way, my council has five distinct personalities with five different sets of goals and five different ways of doing things. Yeah. And our challenge is to work with the council to either get something to a vote where there's clear direction or interpret or interpolate from what they provide us for feedback to figure out how we're serving the council as a whole. And that can be challenging at times. And part of the role of the mayor is to assist us by working with the council to give us clear direction, give us clear feedback, so we're not just trying to figure out something that's clear as mud and guess. Right, and right. so um, that's a really important role of the mayor because as they preside over the meetings, part of that role is as we're having discussion on policy topics is to make sure that the feedback or decisions are very clear and the direction to staff is is consistent yeah now uh, 
just not not to put you on the spot, but it, this this makes me think of something. You, Tom, had um, have had a fairly unique experience. I mean, not not totally unique in that it, it's happened before, but you, for lack of a better term, sort of presided over the merging of two cities. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that all came together and 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 where what your role was and how how your job worked into that? So pre-merger, we had two separate communities. We had the city of Elko. City of Elko had its own council. They had their own city administrator, their own city clerk, their existing organizational structure. City of Newmarket, same thing. We had a council. We had staff. I was the city administrator there. And the motivation for the merger was stepping beyond boundaries and simply taking a look at two communities which were growing quickly. We're expected to see a lot of growth in the future and simply looking at the taxpayer and the level of services and the quality of services that were provided and saying, hey, do we need two city halls? Do we need two city administrators? Do we need two city clerks? Do we need two of everything? Um, Can we be more efficient if we work together? Mm -hmm. And you see this around the state, um, and I see this because I get calls from people anytime the merger (laughs) discussion comes up. Somebody invariably says, hey, call that guy down in Elko Newmarket. But when you take a look at that, um, it usually comes down to there's close proximity. There is a strong similarity between the two communities, even though there's a separate identity. They're more the same than they're different. Usually um, in successful mergers, a lot of the finances are more similar or, if not similar, complementary to each other. Once they complement each other's tricks and weaknesses financially and the services they provide, etc., so in Elko Newmarket, we had complementary financial situations as cities. We shared services. So, for example, Newmarket provided fire services, but Elko provided police services. Okay. Um, and those discussions had gone on informally for a number of years. Um, but And usually they're quiet and mm-hmm. not too loud because there are some people that I guarantee you today, if it rains tomorrow, it'll be because the cities merge. <laughs> um, but for the most part... Uh, it was keeping the taxpayer and the resident in mind and how can we do it better. Um, ultimately, uh, the councils in both cities say we need to have a formal discussion about it. And uh, we prepped for it. We brought in um, a consultant who had experience with municipal consolidations and city township consolidations. We were prepared to have three full workshops on the topic, exploring the issue with at the end of the day, do you want to move forward? with exploring this issue formally and putting it out to the residents for a vote. About 10 minutes into the meeting, we had a council member elect who was participating in the meeting raise his hand and say, does anybody not think this is a good idea? (laughs) (laughs) And we were done. And we moved immediately into the process of looking at it, and it was put out to our residents. It was actually voted um, 83% in favor in one community, 84% in the other community. I don't know if you get closer to a mandate than that. That's pretty good. And, in fact, by the time we actually had the vote, most people thought the community was already merged because of the public communication on the topic. So it actually worked very, very well. That's great. That's great. So, I mean, it, was, uh, it wasn't the minefield that it could have been, is what you're saying. There have been messier. If yeah. you do a little research, yeah. um, this, this one went actually very, very well, and we're held up as a model of how you should approach it. That's outstanding. All right. Well, last week we had the University of Minnesota Athletics Director Mark Coyle on this show, and and when we asked him about the importance of funding, uh, he said one of his mentors had taught him that 
Money is not the most important thing, but it's right up there with oxygen. Uh, I would imagine the same principle applies with a city. Um, how does local government aid, the, the, the money that a city receives from the state, play into that? Um, when the Minnesota legislature adjourned in May without passing most of the bills that they had uh, been working on, including a local government aid bill, how did that affect your city? Go ahead, Tom. Well, um, to be kind of straightforward on it, uh, they didn't change sweeping reforms to local government aid, but it's still there. Yeah. So we're simply operating under local government aid as it's been in place for about the last decade, mm -hmm. a little more than a decade. Um, I think when you talk local government aid, you kind of need to understand the history of local government aid. Um, LGA was, or its predecessor was originally established in the late 60s. It was a way to provide revenue for cities to provide services and get things done outside of property taxes. Property taxes for most cities make up 70, 70 to 80 percent of the revenue for providing most of the services that aren't, you know, sewer and water, but mm -hmm. streets, fire, city hall, all those things. Yeah. And over the years, it's evolved. Um, in the 80s, it became needs-based. They established a formula where previously it had been per capita. Everybody gets proportionately the same amount, and then it became needs-based. Um, based on your needs, uh, you get more than they do. There are cities that don't get any LGA. Um, they're generally larger uh, communities that generally have a, a very diverse tax base, sure. generally very prosperous, but there are cities that don't get any LGA at all. Um, Elko Newmarket, we are the beneficiary of getting local government aid mm -hmm. um, because of the way the formula works. But anytime you have a formula and you're choosing winners and losers, there's always dispute over how the formula works. And so over the years, there's been a number of changes. Uh, the formula was revised again in the early 90s with a lot of tweaks through the 90s and early 2000s. In 2003, they instituted a wholly new formula again, which is the one we're largely working under okay. today. Um, and the formula is based on an allocation that this legislature provides for funding into the formula. Mm -hmm. And so there's always, not only is it how's the formula structured, but how much funding is allocated to the formula. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's always a discussion. Um, as cities, we always say, well, as soon as the state gets into fiscal issues, one of the first things they do is they cut LGA and right. keep those those revenues for themselves. Um, LGA is a, benef is a good benefit for cities that do have it. Um, however, for like Elko New Market, for those city operations that are funded by property taxes, LGA only makes up 4.5% of those revenues. Okay. So you might say, well, that's not that big a deal. Let me put a different spin on it. Um, so even though our those operations might be $4.4 million for a community our size. When we're talking about impact to our taxpayers, every $20,000 in our levy, our property tax levy, is equivalent to 1% tax impact. Right. So when we receive uh, currently, I'll just throw a number out there, $180,000, let's say, in LGA, or $200,000 in LGA, um, you do the quick math on that that's a 10% tax impact one way or the other to your taxpayers. Mm -hmm. So minor fluctuations in LGA actually can have a big impact on our, on our sure. taxpayers. So when you talk about when the legislature adjourned, did it, what was the impact? I would counter by saying it's pretty much status quo, but those discussions at the legislature do have a big impact one way or another on our taxpayers, both in how the formula is structured and how much funding is allocated to the LGA formula. Okay. All right. Population of Elko Newmarket is somewhere around 5,000? Yeah. Okay. 
and we're North, we Northfield is right around twenty thousand. That's right. right? Yeah. So how how does that LGA then work with with Northfield? It's still significant. I think another thing too with the way that the state of Minnesota they're very restrictive too on what the cities can use to finance government, whereas some other city states are much different. So like uh, you know some states cities can finance their city operations with sales taxes, where here mm-hmm. Minnesota says nope, you can't. There's very limited way you can ask for a sales tax for capital projects but again that really in northfield hits us because property taxes is really the primary way we can fund the general operations of the city and so we're we all pay property taxes based on a rate that is set by the state on the type of property that you own whether you're business or residential you pay pay different rates um and then it's based on the value that the county assessor establishes to that property. And then we're kind of like a cooperative where we're all paying the co- this fixed dollar amount to run the city's business for parks and police and fire services and things. We're all kind of going in together on that. And so it's a big reliance that we have on property taxes. And um, Northfield in particular um, it does not have a um, large industrial commercial tax base. Um, so we pay even though our total... Uh, operations or total property taxes that the city needs to run is actually very low comparatively to other cities. The rate of taxes is a little bit higher than the average because of the fact that we have a lower property tax base with that. So that's kind of the implication, the broader implications that we have here locally of having local government aid. It's very important. I'm a true believer that Minnesota would look dramatically different if there weren't local government aid available. You wouldn't see all of these small towns, even though they're kind of dwindling and kind of kind of slowly disappearing, it would have been much more exasperated and it would have, we'd look much different where we'd have had even more urban centers um, growing had the state not stepped in. And, you know, I don't know if that's part of the Minnesota miracle with that too, to try and um, create a more uniform quality of life across the state of Minnesota was kind of the idea behind it. But um, it's an important funding source to us, but um, there hasn't been significant dollars that are put in by the state of Minnesota over time, and so the reliance really is growing on property taxes as the way that Northfield funds right. government. So. Right, right. There was a period 8, 10, 12 years ago where LGA and the state dipped quite a bit, and and I think you both were city managers or city administrators at that point. I think you were in Marshall at that point. I know you've been with Elko and Emmerich for quite some time. Um the only thing, the only impact I remember at least perceiving in that was um, the roads weren't plowed quite as well, I didn't think, in the, in the wintertime. But uh, uh, it, it, was my perception of that wrong? So in Elko Newmarket, we, that was buffered somewhat because we were still experiencing property tax growth coming sure. um, at the time. And so while it didn't, it placed some challenges on us mm-hmm. to... Uh, meet the demands for that growth in the community. Um, the old, we didn't see the same impact that other communities saw at the time. So right. it's just fortunate circumstances. Right. But there were some communities when you see that type of a drop, as I indicated, it doesn't take much to start impacting. You yeah. do have to make decisions related to priorities in your in your city. Do you are you as aggressive in snow and ice removal? for example. Right. Um, how aggressive are you with repair and replacement of infrastructure? So that road that's starting to get bumpy and start seeing, you know, starting to, ex, you know, exfoliate and have potholes and everything else, do you, how aggressive are you on replacing it? Do you, are you, are you a little proactive or do you wait until the neighborhood is screaming at you to get it done? Those are the types of decisions you have to make when um, you're 
needs um, outstrip your revenues or you see those minor fluctuations you're going to see levels it doesn't take much actually to start seeing those types of decisions having to be made related to the level of services you provide that's going to so, be a rough i'm sorry but i didn't mean to i think bruce can say something I, I was, oh, oh okay i was just going to follow up on that a little bit the uh the decision processes that the city use and we're going to ask you a little bit about the budgeting process but before we go there let me just see if you guys uh, to me as a planning commissioner i see several individuals in the data stream if you will in the decision stream i've got the eda uh, pushing for development and growth i've got developers with dollar signs in their eyes and beautiful projects and you've seen the kinds of Every house has trees and dogs in the front yard, and it looks like it's going to be a gorgeous, you know, Mayberry-style village when they get done digging dirt. And then you got the city council, and you got the planning commission, and you got the people. And the people are pretty much counting on the planning commissions, the city councils, and the EDAs to do all this thinking. But at the end of the day, I think you guys are stuck with the budgeting issue. So if, have you ever heard of Strong Towns? Mm-hmm. Yeah, strong. we brought a strong town speaker in here, and the point that they made was the point that you were kind of hinting at. Uh, do you design the new road to, so that it's going to last a little bit longer because you know that an existing road is going to be needed to f- be fixed in 10 years, so you want this new road. You don't want to end up with both sets of roads needing to be fixed at the same time. How do you manage that as part of your budgeting process? Do you think in, I mean, how do you think past the next ballot b- or election which is where the city council focuses. How, how do you get that 30-year horizon? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just be brief with it and say that that's the good news. of Unlike the, a business corporation, an incorporated city isn't held to a quarterly earnings, you know, kind of short-term perspective. So, you know, like the getting back on Tom's example, when I was in Marshall, when even though we had short-term financial challenges, the council intentionally chose to continue to invest in infrastructure as if we were doing normal projects. In fact, interest rates were incredibly low still at that time. So we were like, we're going full ahead because this is cyclical, it's gonna change. We made some temporary changes. We limited salary increases and those kinds of things. But um, so I think it's it's important to take the long uh, long vision from a community standpoint and you want more slow and steady from a city government standpoint versus you know dramatic changes. But yes, I mean, Finances are important in perspective related to that, and I think trying to have strategic planning that we've tried to incorporate with the city, too, to not just be kind of reacting quickly to things is always important. So I think staff Mm -hmm. often is trying to be measured to try and give that kind of perspective to things to, to, you know, not try and be emotional or overreactive in some circumstances. And in Tom and I's cases, we've been around a while, too, and can maybe give some historical perspective. But, Tom, what do, you, what do you think on his question? I think that's a good point. You know, we're not um, a Fortune 500 company that's looking at quarterly statements and, and from that standpoint. But um, our council, City Hall, has a fiduciary responsibility not only to the residents and taxpayers that are here today, but those that will be here in the future. Now, contrast that against the reality that you have elections every two or four years, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the position and the terms of your governing body. Um, there are ways that you can balance that out. And one of the ways that we do it in Elko New Market um, is that we have various structures in place and process in place that 
make us look at where we're where we're going and have that longer term view because the reality is the wants and needs of the community are infinite the resources that you have to try and meet them are finite and so you, everything's important addressing uh, the animal control issue in a neighborhood is just as important as replacing the street in another neighborhood and rehabilitating a park in another portion of the community but at some point you have to set priorities and make decisions one of the ways that we do it is we establish um, an idea of where we're going we have an adopted community vision if you think about it it's kind of that high level of what we want to be in the future 30 years from now um, it's a reach but not impossible mm -hmm. um, and we strive for that and then below that we identify priority goals as a community where if we have to choose between all things being equal if we have to make a choice this is where we're going to put those discretionary resources that move us towards that goal and so that helps keep um, the governing body and the commissions and the management element within the city focused on those longer term goals now you do have short-term struggles um, we and a lot of other communities do multi-year budgets rather than just being focused on what's it going to be this year starting to take a look out into the future and planning for that so we do a three-year project we do a two-year projected budget a three-year budget that allows us to take a look at what we're proposing to do now but also taking a look at what we're going to do the road so that we down the road so we can maintain flexibility be in a position to respond to the unforeseen and take advantages um, as a community to opportunities that might present itself. Uh, the other thing we do is you need to align what you're doing with what the community wants. So we do that through a number of ways. There's the normal ways, you know, door knocking um, and interactions that your elected and appointed officials have, the front counter conversations that you have at City Hall. But we also go out, and many, many communities do, we go out and do community surveys because at the end of the day, government is a service industry. And in a service industry, customer satisfaction is how you measure success, right? And so we take a look at whether or not we're meeting the expectations of our residents, and that's how you shift resources. We're doing fine here. We have some extra resources. This area needs improvement. We're going to put it over there. And those types of analysis, as you're going through the budgeting process and you're having those larger discussions, I don't know how it is for um, Northfield, but our budgeting process is about a nine-month process, and I always joke, it's like, hey, we're done. We get a three, we get a three-month break to go through audit, and then we start again. Um, so it, for the general public, they don't realize the amount of time and detail that goes into the budget on an annual process. It's a constant fine-tuning of the city's finances and service delivery for the community. Right. Yeah, I would. I mean, I would agree with that. The um, kind of into the budgeting side of things that. Um, we do a two-year, I would say we're continuing to try and make our second year more um, specific. We have multi-year kind of capital and equipment f uh, planning. Our utility funds, I feel like, which is probably similar to a lot of cities, we're really solid there. We do, we do capital planning, we do operational analysis, and then we do rate studies, and then we kind of do that over a five-year period. We're working to get there, in my mind, on the rest of our city operations on general government. And, you know, I think the cities are moving in the direction of more, more long, you know, short and longer-term financial planning is a focus area. I think performance measurement is another area is where you can get away from qualitative data, get into quantitative data, too. I know Bruce is a quant, so uh, he loves data <laughs> and running the numbers. 
I like that too. It, 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 like anything else, though, just change is difficult. You gotta do that. There might be things like building permit analysis. How quickly do you get from time you get an application in? Do you get it out? Can you, can you call it? Can you have numbers tied to that and then have performance measurements? That's great. Gets a little trickier on what do people think of the park system and how do you rate rate that? You might be able to rate the quality condition of the mm -hmm. facilities, mm -hmm. but. That qualitative data, I think we are still in the service industry, and that's always going to be an important part of it. Is about how do people feel about the community? How do you, you know, how do you? What are your service level expectations as a community? Okay. That can vary from community to community about those goals. And he talked about it with those two cities merging. Um, they happen to have alignment, but you can have quite a bit different perspectives, and that's why people choose to live in the different towns because there might be different things you value um, in the community that you live in. So we, we've talked about the budgeting process and the planning process, right? And one of the problems that you have, and a mechanic told me this once, if someone offers you a free Jaguar sports car, don't take it because you can't afford to maintain it. And it's the same with the city. If you buy too many parks, you have trouble maintaining them. And I, I know that some cities turn down free parkland because they can't afford the maintenance on it. And the question I have is, is how do you handle it because as soon as unexpected money shows up, like the state for a while thought they had five or nine billion dollars excess, and what happened immediately was ten to twelve billion dollars worth of wanas came in and said, "I want to have this, I want to have that." Right? So how did it affect your planning and work when the government came in with the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan to provide money to cities? Did you have trouble with the politics, not the politics, but with the planning? For this one-time good deal of money, I would say on, on Northfield side of it, um, the council activated a committee of representatives appointed by the mayor and the council to kind of review it, to to look on the CARES Act and on uh, the ARPA funds, uh, the second round of federal funding. Looked at what the goals of the federal government were, and then tried to then apply it locally to to try and meet those goals. And it was pretty wide open on how those dollars could be used. It actually went above and beyond what are typical public purpose expenditures. I would say that we typically follow for city government. And I would say in Northfield's case, the the first round of funding, we we looked at kind of th th three legged stool of, you know, some basic government things like we put up you know, barriers and plastic things. And we had PP&E things that we funded and made sure that was covered. And then we helped businesses out that were struggling and offered some grant programs. And we have a lot of nonprofits in Northfield providing food security to people and things. And so we distributed out um, a majority of our dollars on the first run round went out into the community to help the community. So it didn't go to like city, you know, things that were on our wish list. The ARPA funding did give us some ability to do some enhanced security kind of work at City Hall and some more permanent kind of improvements. Um, but we also focused a lot of our um, dollars on housing initiatives that were already that we were, didn't have kind of either rising housing costs on some affordable housing projects that we had that were not going to happen if they didn't get some extra dollars. The timing was perfect. We were able to help out the Community Action Center on the Hillcrest Project and on Spring Creek 2 affordable housing project. Because of those federal dollars, the city actually helped those to get them in the ground and going. And if not for those dollars, it wouldn't have happened. And so I think the our council was pretty wise, and we did help with some fire truck investment recently. So they had a few things that we, we went to, but we, we didn't really
really dream up new things and i think that was probably a measured response where by setting the dollars aside and having some community input on it i think that um there was some good discussion on it we just didn't dream up something and, and build a new playground with the, with the dollars or something so um, i don't know what elko's yeah. experience was yeah i would say that you need to exercise the second rule of budgeting first rule is don't spend more than you have the second rule is one-time money on one-time expenses um you don't want to get into exactly what you were talking about bruce where you initiate you use the dollars to start a new initiative well then it requires ongoing funding and so um our city ben city all the other cities that i'm familiar with they really looked at one-time expenditures for the use of that money uh similar to um northfield the first round the cares act dollars we used it um in things that we normally wouldn't do and we used it for covid relief items uh we issued a large number of loans over $110,000 in loans to local businesses to that were heavily impacted um by the epidemic um and then in the second round uh that shifted more towards infrastructure investments um just two things it allowed us to get things done that needed to get done projects that received dollars were a residential neighborhood that's currently on septic it's older the lots aren't large enough to put in new septic systems they need to have a place to go with their sewage as their systems are continuing to fail and so we use those dollars to partially fund um, and implement what a program we already had in place but was struggling for funding to help get that implemented and we used it for other infrastructure projects uh, that allowed us to get things in place that either provided for the future growth of the community or um, where we had failing infrastructure that needed to get done that came up out of the blue and it needed to get done and it wasn't programmed. And so we used the dollars in, in that manner. We also used it ways to enhance services. So just for an example, uh, we are in the process of reworking the technology in our council chamber so we can provide for hybrid meetings where you don't have to come to City Hall if you want to participate in a meeting or, or see the council meeting going on. Mm -hmm. So um, we've done made those types of advance investments to enhance uh, the services that we we already provide i think the one drawback and i know it's true for us i don't know if it's true for ben but when we initially got guidance from the feds it was very broad and there was this continued desire to get a clear idea of, you can use it for this and use it for that and nearly every city i've talked to is sitting out there going there's this fear However unlikely, but there's a sphere at some point somebody's going to come back in Monday morning quarterback and say the way that you've invested those dollars wasn't okay, and now you got to pay it back to the detriment of your taxpayers. And so um, I think everybody did the best that they could, given the guidance that was provided at the time. But with changes in administrations and changes in time, somebody can always come back and possibly retroactively change the rules on you so that's probably the one drawback of those dollars because for most communities they were fairly significant and they did big good things in their community but that's probably the one fear i know we have related to the use of those dollars right. well okay so just sort of keeping in this same vein of resources um how has it been with staffing for your city? Uh, you know, just about every hiring entity in the country is having trouble finding the right people for the right job. Does that hold true in Northfield and Elko Newmarket? Are you guys having, um, having to make concessions or get creative to hire good people? How's it working with staffing? Yeah, I would say um, we've, uh, when I first got here, I would say Northfield um, was, uh, 
well below market, particularly on the upper end of the um, pay scale uh, with when comparatively looking to other communities. But the ball was already rolling when I got here where they were doing compensation study, testing to see how they match up to other communities. And then the council was committed to working on implementing that. I was here um, when it was getting implemented and we've now had a second pay study, mm -hmm. but basically we are a mid-market. We want to be at the middle of market to be competitive to try and attract and retain employees. It's cost us money and the community has seen tax levy increases and it's primarily been driven by trying to remain competitive on wages and benefits. I also think we've seen a dramatic increase in the retention of employees and the quality of employees that we're able to keep here and stay in. I believe I'm a believer that that will, good people translate to good public services, and you get what you pay for to a certain degree too. And so, we're continuing to feel some of that pain, but I think it's a good investment from my standpoint. And I think the council, even though they haven't appreciated uh, some of the challenges of the feedback, I think it's been good. Um, but I, I can't imagine if the council had not done those pay studies where we would be today and how big of a trouble we would be in now, because we have seen decreasing labor force we have seen challenges in some positions some more than others so it might we have seen we're in we've had some real struggles hiring some engineer positions we've been fortunate on some key police hires but we've seen we've been able to hire people but there's been a steep drop off in the quality of candidates when we've gotten down to that whereas we used to have you know 100 people apply and we used to have like 30 40 qualified people to start whittling this down to it's just getting much less now. I think we're also seeing, you know, a higher expectation around uh, accommodations from positions that might not need traditional settings of being in the office, where people are expecting hybrid capabilities. We try and get people. We love to have our employees living in town and working in town, but that's just not the reality. We're in a mobile society, and um, so it's also helped us to recruit talent to be more flexible on um, when we can to work remotely. And like Tom said, we've invested in technology to be able to allow people to do that from a security standpoint where they can work remotely and it doesn't cause security problems. But it's definitely been challenging. Um, we've seen it a little bit on seasonal employees, but not hugely. Um, but that's still an area we're also taking a look at because um, even our seasonal people, we relied on kids, um, that kind of a thing. We've had to increase some of our wages there for like pool and park positions. So it mm -hmm. um, hasn't hit a crisis for us yet, but we're definitely feeling it as a city. But I think Northfield has been fortunate. We've kept up um, on, our, on our competitiveness. We haven't gone. We are seeing some communities are offering bonuses for the police departments. That's a kind of a double whammy with police, just the challenging environment of the police, what we've seen uh, you know, with the criticism of some of the police department across the country and police officers questioning their career goals mm -hmm. and um, not seeing large enrollments into that profession. So I think we need to be really strategic about how do we, how do we have meaningful police reforms, but also at the same time um, give the resources they need um, to be successful in those positions and support them because uh, we need uh, good law enforcement officers out there. And so that's, uh, we have a number of officers that are scheduled for retirement. We're talking to the council about that budgeting now. Mm -hmm. So we're doing succession planning, but that's a real challenge that we see out there. We, the one community is St. Peter. They had no applicants one time for a police opening position. Wow. And what in the world do you do if you don't have police officers? So, again, I, that's some of my experience with the labor force. I don't know what Tom's uh, seen in Elko Newmarket. So I think when you're talking about recruitment and retention, uh, I think there's a couple things to note. One, 
municipal government is seeing the same impact that the hardware store downtown mm-hmm. is seeing and every other business that's out there and trying to recruit. There just isn't enough bodies for the positions that are out there for people who um, are active, engaged in the labor force. So as we take a look at, and I think that's, you know, there's the larger reasons that we see across, but I also think specific to government, there's a couple things. Um, I think there's been a change in perception in, in government. Um, you know, if we go back to the 60s and we look at Kennedy's speech about it's not what you, you know, country can do for you, it's what you can do for your country, there was kind of this idea of working in government as a vocation and a calling. I don't know, to be honest, that it's held in the same esteem generally that it used to be. Um, you're looking at uh, the characteristic in the, labor, in the labor force today. People want to go to jobs where they feel fulfilled. They want to go to jobs where um, they can say, I do this, and people say, wow, that's a cool job. You know, They want that type of fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the current labor market, um, they want jobs where they work nine to five. They want jobs that provide lots of flexibility. We're in a customer service industry. We, we don't, there's a limited number of positions in our organizations where you can work remotely to any significant degree. It's a lot of front counter service. If you're a police officer, I'm sorry, having holidays off, working nine to five, Monday through Friday, that just don't work. No. So um, when you look at that, there's a lot of aspects. And the other part of it, too, is in our roles, uh, we don't deal generally in government with people on their best days. We help people solve problems, so we usually work with them on their not good days. And that is has an impact on your staff. And so I think the number of people who are called to local government um, is less uh, than it used to be at some point in the past. Um, I think one of the things that we need to do going forward is we need to change that perception. Um, the other thing I just think within the market, um, and I'll, I'll use some stereotypes, but it's like, hey, man, if you got that county job, you're set for life. <laughs> the reality is I don't think uh, local government is as competitive with the private sector that it was at one point mm-hmm. in time. Um, and I think the way that you change that is to try and be out in the market and try and do those market evaluations like Northfield, Elko New Market, a long time ago made a decision that we were going to be competitive in the market. We, as small towns often can be, we don't want to be the stepping stone where you have somebody come into a position, get a few years of experience, and they go on someplace else. Right. We wanted to be able to steal somebody else's talent and then keep them and the talent that we develop organically to keep them too. And so going out, being competitive with regards to pay and benefits and flexibility that you can provide where you can provide it are important uh, to getting people on board um, within your organization, also with keeping them. The other thing is just culture of the organization. And that's one thing that we've taken a look at. And that starts with the city council. Because when you do this job, you don't do it to get rich. You do it because you enjoy it. You enjoy Mm -hmm. the people you work with. You enjoy the people that you serve. And creating a culture of an organization We've all seen it. Good organizations attract good people. Good people provide, work hard, and provide good services. And it becomes a synergy. And so our council has recognized that, and they are very conscious of the culture of the organization, and they set the tone at the top. And we've had very good luck, even with all the challenges that Ben and I are talking about, with recruiting people, and we have very low turnover rate Mm -hmm. um, with regards to our employees. And so I think there's a lot of facets to it that we 
can't control and need to respond to. But probably the biggest thing we can do internally is to make sure that we're competitive within the market and that the culture of our organization allows us to recruit and, and retain quality talent for our organizations. Ben, you were talking about the, uh, the Northfield Police Department. Uh, at one point this summer, uh, they were, the Northfield Police Department was fully staffed. I don't know if they've actually been able to maintain that peak or not, but just the simple fact that they got there, even if it was for two weeks, felt like a major accomplishment to uh, to to me as an observer. Yeah, we lost that already. I think yeah. it was like two weeks we were there. This is another good example of what Tom was just talking about, too, on competition, is they're really talented, what I call like mid-level um, person who was on a high trajectory to be a future police chief, frankly, who was an investigator on our department, who ended up taking a sales job um, uh, in transitioning out um, of the profession. And that's where we have a vacancy right now and we just posted for the position. But um, yeah, that's the reality. That's a reality. And um, uh, so it, it, is, uh, it is a challenge. And unfortunately, yeah. we weren't uh, fully staffed for very long. Well, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, for our listeners, you're listening to Public Policy this week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. From our studios in beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota, I'm Rich Larson alongside my co-host Bruce Moreland, and we are talking to City Administrators Tom Terry of Elko Newmarket and Ben Martig of Northfield. Gentlemen, there probably just isn't a more important need for a city than economic development. Um, what are you guys, what are your cities doing to foster and attract new business to your area? Um, in 2022. Northfield has a stated goal to grow its industrial commercial base. Um, what can the city do to grow in that sector? And does the same, would the same principles hold true for, for Elko Newmarket? Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's extremely important for Northfield. They talked earlier about the, I, I think we were a little upside down on our tax base. I mm -hmm. think we need to get a little more diversification into commercial and industrial. They pay a higher tax rate than residential does. And then traditionally, if you find the right type of business that doesn't have huge demands, like like we look at water needs. Um, so uh, we have planning for our wastewater plant. We got to be careful if we recruit a certain type of industry that needs a lot of wastewater treatment. We also have to look at the cost of treating that and their ability to pay for those costs for those utilities. But I think we, we have a multifaceted strategy, I guess, as a community. We want to grow smartly. So first of all, prioritizing infill sites where we already have infrastructure that's available to try and either grow our existing businesses, which is always the best strategy, mm -hmm. or secondly, um, try and attract new business in. And when I talk about tax base, too, we're talking physical, real property improvements. And the way property tax, it's a building. Jobs are important, but the building's the ones that are paying the tax bills on it. So Northfield's really focused on the building side, especially knowing our labor force is limited. So we're trying to find those businesses to grow that can grow with us or that don't have huge employment needs. Having sites that if you don't have a lot of infill sites to fill, trying to have like shovel-ready sites ready to go mm -hmm. where you can recruit a business in or to grow an existing business to maybe relocate um, are some strategies using the limited numbers of tools that the state of Minnesota offers like tax increment financing or tax abatement to you know, encourage investment. And again, I look at the long game on those that um, you have to first prove that they need some special tax assistance but then the long term is usually if you get a business to either grow with you or, or come to your community, they're going to be there for probably a long time, decades, 
So sometimes I look at the, the long game on those incentivized tools. You shouldn't just throw it out willy-nilly and offer an incentive every time a business asks for it. You got to be smart and we hire people to pull apart their pro forma and question them on it. But we, we're, the council's been active and willing to do that. Um, you need staff. You need to you need to have staff that is um, pro development that stands by your standards and communicates those early to businesses. They like predictability when they come in to know, okay, I can live with maybe what your standards are, but I want to know what they are on the front end. So how do we communicate those? Create um, a clear path of what they need to go through to get approvals and create some certainty for them. So we're trying to continue to improve our internal processes. Um, I've often heard a, a business say to just somebody who's responsive that answers the phone and then gets back to you when you have questions. That's really important to a government. So it's getting rarer and rarer. We're trying to we're trying to do all those things. And as a small town, that a relatively small town, I still consider Northfield a smaller town. That's one like strength that we have as a community is we have a lot to offer. Um, and we can be pretty responsive and, and customize things and, and respond pretty quickly. So those are things that we're doing. Again, we're going to be initiating a new, you know, talking about growing your own business. We're going to do a business retention and expansion formal uh, survey this year to meet with businesses to find out what challenges are they seeing, what opportunities, and that can maybe identify where we might be able to help them grow. But um, yeah, those are just a few of the examples of some things um, being ready for infrastructure that you have so you can service them when, the, when they're ready. Yeah, Ben's, you know, absolutely right. Um, economic development is one of those things that every community struggles with. Elko New Market, for example, is 96% tax base is residential. Okay. It is not diverse at all. And so when you look at what you're trying to do through economic development, one is you're trying to grow your tax base. Um, but you're, then you're also trying to diversify it, especially in the case of Elko New Market. It provides for a healthier tax base depending on what's happening in the market overall. But there's other elements to it, synergies that are created through the economic development. Uh, you provide more goods and services through some of those businesses that might come that improves the quality of life for your residents, and that you provide jobs, which also provide for the quality of life for your residents. But those people that work in your community maybe come from outside your community, they shop in your community, or they may move to your community. And so when you look at economic development, you have to kind of look at it from a holistic level and look at the synergies between all of those elements. One of the things that you often see with economic development is there's kind of the, hey, pull the magic wand out of your pocket and just wave it and make things happen. Ben, go find a grocery store and drag it into Elko Newmarket, just make it happen. So responsible economic development does a couple things. One is it understands that market forces rule. If there isn't a market or the market won't allow that business to locate there, it's like a super tanker. You're just not going to pick it up out of the water and turn it around. You can help guide it a little bit this way or that way. You can grease the wheels. You can remove barriers in economic development, but you can't wholesale change the existing market forces. If you do, you end up usually spending a lot of resources with limited returns. The other thing is we have to look at what we control. One is market forces. We can't control that. We can't control decisions by individual property owners, um, that they have property that they want to sell in an appropriate location at a price that works within the market for economic development to occur. And there's decisions by individual businesses. Are you the right fit? That being said, there are things you can do to grease the wheels and remove barriers. Ben hit on it. One thing is making sure that you can provide and have infrastructure in place to be able to open up those areas for development when they need to open up. 
you can control the process. You can make it less burdensome, easier, more friendly. Um, if you talk to developers that have been around a long time, they will tell you part of the decision they make is I'm going to go someplace where they're easy to work with and I can work because I have options on where I can go. So I can go here and I can beat my head against the wall or I can go over here where they are business-like and they're friendly and they're mm -hmm. good to work with mm -hmm. and I can make good business decisions based on my interactions with them. And the other thing is just the culture within your community all overall with regards to your businesses that you have within the community. Are they just there to be fleeced for property taxes or are they recognized for the larger contributions that right. they provide in the community? Okay. And I think if you do those things, you can provide for reasonable, logical, successful economic development within your community. Yeah. Certainly one of the things that an industrial or a, a business entity would have to consider as they are looking for a place to put down roots is the availability of, of housing that their people can live in. Uh, because, it, you know, who in Minnesota wants to know that your workers are having to travel 30 miles on January 10th, you know, when, when January 9th is a bad snow day and you've got all these workers that can't get to work. So there's some real advantages to having some affordable housing, but we all know that developers make a lot more money on the Cadillacs than they do on the Chevys, and it's the same with housing. And so it's how do we, how do your communities try and deal with making sure you have an affordable housing stock for the people. So like the economic development topic, I think you have to start by understanding what the drivers are related to the cost of housing and what portion of that the city can influence. Um, things we can't influence, the cost of materials, the cost of labor, labor availability, supply chain issues, and larger market forces such as where the best return is within the market for the developers. Sometimes developers get a bad rap from people. It's like, oh, they're just in it for the money. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're taking a risk. They're making an investment of their resources. They have to get a return that exceeds the relative risk for them to make that investment. It's a good thing. But the result is, is they're going to invest those dollars where it provides the surest return or the maximized return. Um, what can we do as cities? One uh, is infrastructure. If we look at Elkanoo Market, probably the biggest barrier to residential development and opening up new residential areas for development is the availability of infrastructure and the cost of it and who pays for it. Generally, our community and most communities take the approach that development should pay for itself unless you make a very specific decision to subsidize it mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. And so that places the burden on the developer those costs for that off-site infrastructure, collector roads, bringing, dragging the sewer and water to the edge of the property, those are additional costs that they have to incur and it pushes the cost of housing up. So how do you address that? Fees. Um, cities do charge fees. They, um, those fees are designed to not be a revenue generator for the city, but to cover the city's costs for processing that application so residents don't bear the burden of that. Um, and then there's design standards. What does the infrastructure look like? So things that we've done in Elko New Market is we have tried to um, work when we have had money available, other one-time money, um, ARPA dollars, mm -hmm. um, et cetera, to uh, advance um, the extension of infrastructure that will open up new areas and help reduce some of those costs. Um, we've taken a look at our fees, um, and I know 
that there have been um, criticisms. Builders Association of Twin Cities, Housing One, you know, Housing First have said that you know fees are a big issue. The reality is that the fees related to the development of, let's say, a typical residential neighborhood are a very small percentage, 4 to 7%. But I think cities should take a look at it and take a look at them regularly. Fees that they, not only fees for processing it, but also fees for requiring to hook up for water, sewer, et cetera. Elko Newmarket has taken a close look at those, and we've reduced the cost to the typical home by over $8,000, um, which is a notable amount. Now, when you're talking home between three dollars and $500,000, or even a home that's $200,000, it doesn't seem like much, but it's what we can do. Right. And then the last part is design standards. Uh, taking a look at what you're requiring developers to build as part of the subdivision, one of the things we've taken a look at, just as one example, is local street standards. Uh, for years, there was the standard that a local street in a residential neighborhood is going to be 32 to 36 feet wide and so on and so forth. Well, all of that additional width isn't really needed. And there's a cost to install it, but there's also cost for the city and the general taxpayer to maintain it and replace it perpetually into the future. And so we've taken a look at some of our design standards, reduced them, tweaked them. We've taken a look at, for instance, materials, new technologies. Um, most of the water mains and um, older portions of communities are all steel um, water mains. Uh, taking a look at, can you use PVC, new mm -hmm. technologies, things that are proven, tried and true. Uh, being open to implementing those that reduce the cost for the developer. And so we've taken a look at a lot of those things and help reduce the cost for development because that reduced cost will allow the developer to deliver a product less expensive. However, at the end of the day, usually the developer will sell to what the market is, right. regardless of what the cost is. And you can't blame them for that. It's the reality. You should get what the market is. And so there's the larger market forces of supply and demand. And right now, especially within the metropolitan area, the supply of housing is far less than the demand for housing. And as a result, that is driving the price up as well. I'll, I'll build off of what Tom's saying, too. I mean, it's got to be a multifaceted approach. But I would agree that, like, I think infrastructure costs, since I've been a city administrator for 20 years or whatever, it has exceeded the base CPA inflation every year. I mean, it's just the increased cost of, you know, oil and streets and pipes going in is just really high. And then land values can be really high depending on where you're at, too. So I just, I think land use is really a key to housing is to really, I think some of the solutions to really affordable type of housing is going to be more based on a greater density from my seat and opinion. I think also if you can ha be closer to rich public services and amenities where you can more easily not have to rely on to drive a long distance to get to the grocery store to be able to get your kids to get to school by you know actually being able to bike or walk to school I think thinking about that demands you to look at how we can maybe get people in a greater area and I think from some people's American dream of like the single family house in the sprawling suburbs, I think you're kind of, re if we got to rethink that mindset a little bit, if we are really talking serious about affordable housing, because I think that's where you're, if you can reduce the, um, the length of the streets, the cost of the streets, like Tom's talked about, if you can be closer to these amenities, you might not even need a car. Like how much money can you save if you, your car, your family could go from a three car family to a two car family or from a two car family to a one car family to get by from that could be dramatic when you look at insurance costs and gas and maintenance and all those kinds of things. So 
that, you know, from an individual standpoint is maybe you could pay a little bit more on, you know, towards your housing cost if you can save elsewhere. And I think another one kind of along those, like being more data-driven versus emotionally based around housing in particular, because I've made some personal decisions around housing that if I would have turned back time, I'd do much differently. Thinking about you don't always have to be a homeowner for it to make financial sense for you. In some cases, actually financially smarter to be a renter. In Europe, you often see a greater percentage of of um, renters and, and their, they've got a lot more household income that's like much less of their household income is going to housing and they can use it to spend on other things. But yes, they're not building equity into a home, but because of the cost of it, it makes financial sense in their particular case. I'm not saying that's right for everybody. I think for some people that makes sense to be to build equity in your home and get a return. But we also know there's been volatility in housing markets too. And it's not always an asset. Sometimes a house can be a liability to people too. So. It's not an easy topic, and it's hard for people to get emotional around housing. It's your home. It's your it's your life. It's where you want to put roots. But at the same time, if we're going to get serious about affordable housing, I think everything's got to be on the table for options when, when we look at that. One of the, one of the things that has made housing uh, such an issue is the issue of climate change, which has started to affect a lot of communities. And I happen to have been on the Climate Action Planning Advisory Board in terms of the water subcommittee that Northfield put together. And I've always been curious as to how you think, I mean, it's part of Northfield's planning. I assume it's part of your planning, at least being aware that, you, you know, how climate is changing your, your needs. Uh, one headline that recently hit on that issue was uh, groundwater. And if you, I, again, as a planning commissioner, I watched what happened with Des Moines trying to get their water clean, and they have to spend millions of dollars every year to get rid of some of the chemicals that are falling into their water table. And I'm curious how you guys think about the change of climate, and in particular its effect on some of your strategic resources. So I think your approach really depends on um, and not to get too political, because I know you guys are claiming this is not a political <laughs> show, but how you identify the cause for climate change. Um, I think every, everybody agrees that climate is changing. Um, even people that don't believe in man-made influences on climate change agree that there are cyclical changes in climate. And I think once you your community, when you decide what are the drivers to it, will dictate the policy approaches and how you respond to it. If you believe that climate change um, is influenced by people, um, you're going to take a people approach to doing it because you believe that you can change behaviors or approaches and it will have an impact on the larger system. If you believe that it's natural and cyclical, it's going to be more of a reactive approach. You're going to say, okay, how do we respond to this? It's going to, to happen. But across the board, um, minimum things that cities do is respond to it. So you go through periods of wet and wetter periods. Everybody's heard of like a 100-year flood. Well, we've had a lot of those in the last 10 years, right, around the state. And so I think it really comes down to taking a look at how cities design cities and taking a look at our infrastructure and taking a look at changes that we need to make in the design of our cities to be able to respond to the changing climate, whether it's how you handle stormwater, both from... Um, a runoff standpoint, volume, but also treatment and quality of that stormwater um, as that you send downstream. Um, it can be groundwater. Uh, taking a look at um, do you have the ability, and it 
it can be very localized. If you look up in the metro area, there are portions of the metro area that are suffering from um, groundwater supply. Um, but there's other portions of the, of the metropolitan area where um, the groundwater system readily recharges. But that can be affected by overall climate change. You know, if, you, if it recharges readily, that might be the case now. But is there a possibility that that might change over time? So I think cities are becoming increasingly conscious of that. Um, and I think the regulatory agencies that actually put standards in place um, for cities uh, at the state level um, also are becoming increasingly conscious of it and creating a box that we have to work in to respond to it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, the, the um, you know, I think government's gotten better and we all have learned more over time. I, we recently had a council meeting around stormwater management in the inner urban area part of the city where they used to regulate stormwater management much differently where you could just kind of shoot it off site and not worry about it on a pipe well it's not the case anymore you have regional systems you have to actually manage your water on your site now like you didn't have to we have tree planting where we're creating diversity of tree species versus one type and we're going to potentially have a large amount of our canopy wiped out by um, emerald ash borer coming here so we got to make sure when we're planting species that are changing along with the climate we've certainly done the stormwater things um, as well um, but I think those are all important land use uh, considerations. I think also trying to again be c closer to amenities, um, having redundant type of systems in place. So having different types of energy sources where you might have volatility in markets and those kinds of things. Can you have not an over reliance just on gas? Can you have some electric um, serving mm -hmm. uh, needs and those types of things? So we're certainly sensitive to the climate, and I think um, getting better over time and uh, in managing that. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you, this has been a really interesting conversation. It's been great. And unfortunately, we only have so much time. So I think this is where we have to end things. Richard and I want to thank you for coming in and sharing your, your expertise uh, with Ben Mardig from Northfield and Tom Terry of Elko New Market. It's been fascinating. I, I, uh, I look forward to interacting even further with you guys. Yeah, I want I want to echo those uh, those comments. So really, thank you very much for. I mean, you guys are busy people, and we appreciate you taking a little time to uh, talk with us. That will conclude this week's ed edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock a.m. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host today has been Mr. Bruce Moreland. Folks, please tell your family and friends about public policy this week. It is our hope that this show can be a small step to having important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and solutions, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Thank you for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. We'll hope you'll join us uh, again next Friday morning. Uh, when I will be, uh, my, my co-host will be uh, Steve Swigum, and our guest will be the president of the University of Minnesota, Joan Gable. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.